generous Father, we have considered already this morning much to inspire and challenge us on this subject of money. Now speak to us directly from your word in the power of your spirit to give us glad and contented hearts and lives that overflow in generosity. Amen. Please be seated, and if I can ask you to pick up a Bible and turn back to our Bible reading, which was first, uh, the first letter of the Apostle Paul to a young pastor called Timothy, and chapter 6. This was page uh, 1194 in the Church Bibles, and perhaps because I'm not attempting a, anything like a full exposition of this passage this morning, all the more reason perhaps to have it open in front of you to make sure that I'm uh, dealing fairly with the bits of it that I do pull out for your attention this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and two sections uh, from that passage uh, Tom read to us earlier. Now which of the following is the odd one out? Faith, doctrine, scripture, gospel, salvation, money. Well, you're quite right, of course. None of those is an odd one out. (laughs) Paul is concerned with all of those as... uh, he writes to Timothy in these two letters to this, to this young pastor. Money, just as much as all the others in that list, money is a spiritual issue. It was the great uh, Christian uh, leader and reformer Martin Luther who observed that there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse when a person comes to Jesus Christ. Consider, if you will, the story of Zacchaeus as recorded in Luke 19. Can I just point out to you that I'll be referring to a number of other Bible passages. I'm not expecting you to turn these up, but I will mention them as I, uh, uh, in, uh, as I go through them. The story of Zacchaeus is recorded in Luke chapter 19. As a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus would have been a very wealthy man indeed. But on the day he encounters Jesus, his immediate response is, look Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. But even more amazing is Jesus' reply in the next verse. He says to Zacchaeus, Today, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus gives away his money. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Yes, indeed, money is a spiritual issue. Whole sways of those 66 books of the Bible are devoted to the subject of money. 
Proverbs, Mike, in his prayers, and he picked out a number of verses from Proverbs that speak of money and generosity and related subjects. The Acts of the Apostles, in a variety of ways, records the developing use of money, generosity by Christian people. James has much to say about money and the rich. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians has much to say about giving and also this first letter of Paul to Timothy. And then something like 20% of the teaching of Jesus himself touches on the subject of money. But in fact, Scripture speaks not with one, but two distinct voices on this topic of money. The first of these is an affirming voice. Abraham, for example, is described as becoming very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold, Genesis 13, and is not condemned for that wealth. Job started off as a very wealthy man, and by the time God had finished with him, he was twice as wealthy. In the New Testament, Philemon was sufficiently well-to-do that he could host an entire local church right there in his own home. In these and many other ways, the Bible affirms money and the things that money can buy. But there is also within Scripture a second voice, and this is the voice of warning. Jesus famously warned in Matthew chapter 6 that you cannot serve God and money. He means, of course, that money can all too easily usurp the place in our lives that rightly belongs to the one true and living God. Money can easily become, for some people, a God, an idol, Indeed, it has been said that money is some people's trinity. Money is their creator. My money made me what I am today. Money is their saviour. Well, if I get into trouble, I'll simply hire the best lawyer that money can buy and get myself out of trouble. Money is their comforter. Tired? Stressed out? Nothing the bit of retail therapy can't put right. Two voices then, the voice of affirmation and the voice of warning, and we need to listen to them both. Pay attention only to the first, the voice that affirms money and possessions, and we plunge ourselves into materialism, as as exemplified in the so-called prosperity gospel, which blights many parts of the church around the world the fundamental, fundamental error of which is to assume that all the blessings of the life to come can and should be experienced in the present life. But Paul repudiates this teaching when he says in chapter 6 and verse 9 and following, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
I think of that young man some years ago who, when he um, looked at his um, lottery numbers, realized that his numbers fitted the winning, uh, the winning whatever they call it, the, the, the winning prize. And he momentarily rejoiced in the fact they'd just won over a million pounds. And then he looked again at his ticket and realized it was out of date. And he shot himself. Killed himself. So we do need to uh, listen to, uh, take care that we don't only listen to the voice of affirmation about money. But if we listen to only to the second voice, the warning voice, then we're heading for the era of asceticism, which is an unbiblical rejection of all material things. And Paul rejects this too at a number of points in this letter, not least in chapter 6 and verse 17, when he affirms that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So with these two voices of Scripture to guide us, the voice that affirms and the voice that warns us about money and possessions, let's consider now together two attitudes towards money that Christian disciples are urged to cultivate in this passage. And the first attitude is this, be contented. Paul says in verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Food and clothing stand for the basic necessities of life. And already, of course, a warning note has sounded in our minds, as we've heard from Tony and Carol, that there still remain many people in many parts of the world who do not even have those basic necessities. But most, if not all of us, here this morning do have those basic necessities. And as John Stott helpfully explains, what Paul is defining here is not the maximum that is permitted to the believer, but the minimum that is compatible with contentment. Now, of course, some people are never contented, no matter how much they have. You know the saying, ask anyone, rich or poor, how much money he needs, and the answer will always be the same, just a little more. For some people, money is like seawater. The more they drink, the thirstier they become. But other people you know, less obviously, are never contented, no matter how little they have. They hear that uh, there are people uh, uh, elsewhere in the world who have a thousandth of what you and I have, and they become so wracked with chronic guilt, they can't enjoy, enjoy anything. But Paul is advocating to Timothy and beyond Timothy to Timothy's church and beyond that to us precisely the attitude that he had adopted for himself as recorded in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I have learned in whatever state I am, in plenty, with plenty, or with very little, I've learned to be content. What does contentment mean? Contentment means rejoicing in God's good gifts. We are not then joyless ascetics, ascetics but take pleasure in the gracious provisions that flow from the heart of a loving and generous God. 
Paul in chapter 4 and verse 3 of this epistle uh, talks about um, uh, gifts that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Contentment then means rejoicing in God's good gifts. Secondly, contentment means being satisfied with enough. Bishop John Taylor puts it like this, our enemy as Christians is not possessions but excess. Our battle cry is not nothing but enough. And then he quotes a Greek philosopher, not a Christian at all, Epicurus, who said, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. Give me a barley cake and a glass of water and I am ready to rival Zeus for happiness. And when someone asked him for the secret of happiness, his answer was, add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. Contentment means being satisfied with enough. Thirdly, contentment means simplicity. Contentment frees us up to travel lightly and to live simply. Some years ago, uh, some years ago, uh, ago a group of Christians uh, gathered together to pen an evangelical commitment to simple lifestyle and included the following wise words. We resolve to renounce waste and oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing and housing, travel and church buildings. We also accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine, and between the service of God and slavery to fashion. Contentment means simplicity. We recognise that the seed of God's word is easily smothered by the cares and riches of this life. To live simply means to be free of distractions in order to love God and serve God and others. One practical principle arising from this passage then is the principle of contentment and leads straight away to our second principle, which is the principle of generosity. Contentment leads to generosity. Be generous, says Paul. What Paul has to say in verse 17 and following is addressed especially to rich Christians, among whom we must count most, if not all, of ourselves, to be honest. Now, rich Christians are not condemned for being rich. Curiously enough, Paul commands them to become even richer that is to say, to add to their present wealth another kind of wealth. Command those who are rich in the present world, says Paul, to be rich in good deeds. Command them to be generous and willing to share. Now, what does this biblical generosity mean? Well, it means, uh, first of all, that it, uh, it, it means pro uh, giving proportionately. Generosity means giving proportionately. We cannot all give the same amount, but we can all give proportionately. As it happens, I do not uh, think that the Old Testament law of tithing is binding on Christians today. If you think differently, then God bless you. 
but you ought to realise that the Old Testament actually lay, actually lay down a triple tithe. 10% to the temple, priests and Levites, another 10% for the annual festivals, and a further 3.3% for the poor. So if you're going to take tithing as binding on Christians, then it's 23.3% um, and not 10%, I'm afraid. But as far as I can see, the New Testament does not uh, express giving in terms of an exact percentage, but rather in terms of generosity. Some people may need to give less than others. They may need to make as, uh, as their priority caring for their family or paying off debts. I heard only yesterday of a man who gave t a 10% tithe faithfully to his church and yet was neglecting his needy parents. That, can't, that surely can't be right. Some of us may need to give less, but many of us could give more, possibly much more. Certainly, generosity means giving proportionately. Secondly, generosity means giving to those who have no way of repaying our generosity. The prevailing culture, whoops, the prevailing culture in New Testament times was one of reciprocity. If I gave to, give to you, then I expect you to return the favour back to me. But Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 6, challenges this principle by insisting that his followers should lend or give without expecting to get anything back. Luke 6, verse 35. Then thirdly, generosity means giving the first and the best rather than the last and the least. This is the philosophy of Besom, isn't it? Isn't it? And it's a very biblical philosophy. Don't give what's simply left over and run out of good life, but give the best, the good. Our giving should be modelled on God's giving, verse uh, 17 in our passage. God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. If God gives of his best to us, which he does, then should we not give of our best to God and to his work? There are then two ways in which a Christian may view his or her money. One is to ask, how much of my money shall I use for God? The other is to ask, how much of God's money shall I keep for myself? Then fourthly, generosity means giving with abandon. Now I take it for granted that we should take some care with our giving. It would be irresponsible to give money to someone who is very likely to go and spend it on alcohol or drugs, or to an organisation that refuses to state what his accountability arrangements are. But generosity will always have an element of abandon, of giving for the sheer joy of giving, out of love for those we are giving to. Think of the woman with the alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, Matthew 26. She poured it over Jesus' head as he was reclining at the table. What a waste, complained the disciples. But Jesus said, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Think of the widow who gave her might to the temple treasury. She might have had plenty of good reasons for withholding it, given how corrupt the temple was in those days. But she gave it anyway, and Jesus commends her for doing so. 
After all, we ourselves are not deserving of God's grace. So we do not wait until we find people who are worthy of our generosity. And then, lastly, on this point, generosity means giving cheerfully. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God loves a cheerful giver. I would be cheating if I were to point out that the Greek word for cheerful is where we get our word hilarious from, from but it's uh, still worth saying, I think. Still fun to say. But it's not cheating at all to point out that it is more blessed to give than to receive, for Jesus himself stated as much as recorded in Acts chapter 20. I began with an odd one out question. Let me finish with an arithmetic question. What do you get when you add godliness and contentment together? Well, the answer is verse 6 of our passage this morning. Add godliness and contentment together, and the sum is great gain. In so many ways, as we follow Jesus, the values and the expectations of the world are turned on their head. Didn't Jesus himself say that it's by losing our life that we find it, by dying that we live, by denying ourselves that we find ourselves, by taking up our cross daily that we find resurrection life, and that by giving we receive And so may we all learn the gift of deep contentment along with the grace of generous giving. And then we will discover the truth of what the Apostle says in verse 19, that we find ourselves laying up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. May God bless us as we seek to be a blessing to others. Amen.